You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. She moves through the water, stately and shapely and dark, by oar, thick poles, polished blades, and the foam and the swell of the ocean beneath is propulsion. The oar smoothly handled, each one in compulsion and balanced in tune, lightly carried, the weight of the water below, lifting the vessel and men of the crew, rowing out in the night for the tide. The sea's phosphorescence showers upwards in sparkles, waves reach to stars in the sky, like fire fallen embers, tumbling back down, spindrift to black ocean's darkness to die. The strokes of our blades lead on the adventure, slice through the tops of the watery glens, push back the blue lumps of raggedy sea, taking us forward. In their places the oars reaching out, stretch, bend and drag, the rippling white, the strength of their brightness in rowing, the heavy and muscular men, goodness is flowing. Stretched arms, bending elbows, and then the good drag, hairy forearms all bulging as pine blades are gracefully cleaving under the tops of the waves. Sinews in all synchronicity, as one man raises his voice in the pulse of the call of the boat song, from his throat come the sounds that open the shoulders and broaden the backs and drive the craft on, snorting and roaring over each wave swell and roller, diagonal lines in the water dispatched from each side of the bow as the prow ploughs forward. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. My name's Colin Waters and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes or so. Now, for this edition, you're going to need your sea legs as we're going to tackle the celebrated late 18th century Gaelic poem The Berlin of Clan Renald, a long poem that describes a stormy sea journey. The era in which the poem was written, post culloden was stormy enough in itself, with the British government committed to clamping down on Gaelic culture in the wake of the Jacobites' failed rebellion. The poem was written by Alexander MacDonald, a fascinating character who we'll be hearing more about in the course of this podcast. It won't come as a surprise, given that he died 250 years ago, that our guest isn't actually Alexander MacDonald himself. Instead, we'll be joined by Alan Reick, whose translation of the Berlin of Clan Renald was published by Catalonia earlier this year. Alan was born in Lanarkshire, educated at Cambridge and Glasgow, and he now works at the University of Glasgow, where he's a professor of Scottish literature. He's also the editor of uh, Hugh McDermott's collected works from Carcanet Press and has published five collections of poetry, the most recent one of which is Homecoming, New Poems, 2001-2009. to He also wrote two fantastic books uh, with the painter Alexander Moffat, Arts of Resistance and Arts of Independence, They're like book-long conversations, and I I can't recommend them highly enough. Now, I began our conversation by asking Alan to describe the Berlin of Clanranald. The Berlin of Clanranald is a poem that was composed, it was written in the 1750s by Alistair McVeister Alistair. It's about a Berlin, a galley, a ship, uh, and the crew crew men on the ship each of whom has a particular function that is described, a particular job to do. But they all have to work in coordination and it it valorises and makes heroic the kind of work that they do in in that coordination. But the poem takes you through a voyage from 
southeast down to the Sound of Isla and then across to Carrickfergus in Ireland. And in the last part of the poem, the last third of the poem, they go through a horrendous storm. A tremendous storm blows up and threatens to engulf the ship and destroy all the crew and they have to work in coordination in order to get the ship through that and safe to harbour. So it's an exciting poem and it's a, it's a major work of reimagination because the ship itself is described in meticulous detail. Um, but it's also a metaphor uh, for a kind of humanity that travels through a terrible storm and things that are inflicted upon them without, their, uh, without any sense of it being inevitable or any sense that uh, they will get through it inevitably. What's the historical backdrop against which this poem appears? It was quite a tumultuous moment in Scotland's history, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. It was, indeed. And Alistair McVeister, Alistair or Alexander MacDonald um, was at the heart of it. He uh, fought with the Jacobites at the, the Jacobite Rising in the 1745. He was, in fact, a Gallic tutor to Prince Charles Edward Stuart. Uh, but he was a soldier also. He led a command of men uh, in in the fight, and he was uh, at Culloden. And he was he and his family were persecuted uh, by Hanoverians after Culloden. Um, I had to uh, move around the Highlands and the Islands of Scotland, and lived in Canna for a time. So Culloden, the Jacobite Rising, the march um, to the south, and then the retreat, and then Culloden. That was a massively traumatic uh, episode in the history of. Of Scotland. Um, the other great poet of that period, the great Gaelic poet of that period, Duncan Ban McIntyre, uh, it's curious, he fought on the Hanoverian side because his boss was a Campbell and um, famously he went to fight uh, but threw away his sword. He, couldn't, he had to take the sword with him uh, from, his, uh, from his chief, uh, as it were, but he threw it away. He, couldn't, he wouldn't fight anymore. But Alistair McPaster Alistair was on the Jacobite side. So you get the sense that the, the world itself, the whole world of Scotland, the whole world of the, the re fairly recently United Kingdom, 1707, so this is happening 1745, 1746, and then the Berlin of Clanranald is written, we think, in the 1750s. This, is, this whole world is going through a, 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 a terrible um, traumatic upheaval and, and period of bloodshed and, and reconfiguration of identity. I think at the heart of the poem, there is this sense that there is the human world at which terrible things might happen. There's also the uh, natural world and the physical world out there, which will bring terrible things upon us. But we have to find a way to get through. And the poem enacts a kind of uh, getting through, a kind of voyaging through, um, through terror. For people who are maybe not familiar with the period, it's worth mentioning that the, the Berlin of Clanrenald was uh, originally written in, in Gaelic and you've translated it now. I mean, at the time, post-Culloden, uh, Gaelic was facing quite a dilemma, wasn't it? Yes, it was, and, and Alistair himself um, was involved in that dilemma. At first, almost um, unknowingly, because he worked for the Society for, the, uh, for, for Christian, for the, for the, for the for Christian knowledge, propagation of Christian knowledge. Uh, but his, the effect of that was to uh, compile a dictionary, a Gaelic-English dictionary. And he did this in the belief that this would extend the abilities of Gaelic speakers to deal with the contemporary world that they were in. 
He then found out that, of course, the whole motivation behind this organisation was the extirpation of Gaelic and the, and the, the end of that culture. So he, he, he turned against it completely and got more, more and more committed to the Gaelic uh, cause, as he saw it. So there was that sense of um, the, the language in which it was written itself becoming isolated and obscured and made less relevant to the world that was to come. Because you're talking also about the period of Enlightenment, and very famously in Edinburgh, for example, the uh, Scottish writers and philosophers were writing uh, preeminently in English. Uh, at the same time as these great Gaelic poems were being composed and, and, and written. So on the one hand, with Duncan Ban McIntyre, you have someone who is illiterate but fluent in Gaelic and composes his poetry to be sung, to be performed, as music. With Alistair McVeister Alistair and the Berlin of Clan Ranald, you have a, a, an extremely sophisticated poet who reads fluently in many la number of languages. So he's familiar with uh, he's familiar with with um, um, Homer and Virgil and the great epics of uh, classical literature. He's familiar with uh, poetry being written in English at the time. He's familiar with poetry written in Scots, um, and his own writing in Gaelic uh, is uh, part of that continuum, part of that context. But the Berlin of Clan Ranald wasn't published until after his death. He wrote a fantastic, uh, scabrous, uh, very funny poem called The Ark, um, uh, almost doggerel, you might say, uh, in which he promises that those Campbells who fought for the Hanoverian side uh, will not be on the Ark when it comes through the storm, uh, unless, unless they uh, manage to swallow a purgative dose of salt water and vomit up all their uh, badnesses. Then they'll be allowed on. Um, uh, he wrote many other poems. There's a beautiful early song um, called The Sugar Brook, The Sugar Burden. So there's all kinds of uh, work, a, a great range and variety in his writing. He really is a, a major figure, a major poet of the Gaelic Enlightenment, you might say, of that era. The Berlin of Clan Ranald is one of the great poems of world literature. Prove me wrong. Would it be possible to hear some of the original Gaelic and then hear your translation of it? I'm afraid not. I, I, I can't give you any Gaelic. My Gaelic is extremely rudimentary and not to be trusted at all. So when I was doing the version that I did of it in English, I was working with Gaelic speakers and uh, people who knew the poem very closely and very intimately. And I was working on line by line, structurally, and in terms of vocabulary, how the poem works. But I don't have Gaelic. My name, the name Riach, the word Riach is a Gaelic word, it has meaning in Gaelic. But I uh, did not grow up speaking Gaelic, my father never did. He had no recollection of his father having spoken Gaelic. So you're going back four or five generations in our family before you find people who speak the language of our name. So that's a part of the story as well. So I can give you my version of it, but I can't give you the original. Let's hear some English um, translation of the original version then. Well, I should say it's a translation in the sense that it is intended to give the meaning of the poem, but it's not a translation in the sense of it being literally line by line or rhythmically. Uh, the Gaelic poem is very closely, tightly structured rhythmically and metrically. My poem uses, my version of the poem uses uh, rhyme and meter and structure, but it's not the same. It doesn't mimic the structure of the Gaelic. So this is how it begins. The Blessing. May the great Lord God of movement carry us safe on all the coral waters of this world. The seas and oceans, currents and streams enable us 
Take this craft upon them, across them, and cradle us. We are launched on day one, this craft of my clan, each one of the crew being tough, strong, and true. Each man hears this call. Bless them all. May the great Lord God of nature bless our paths through the storm. May the stars that breathe down on us light us the way, and the rocks and the waters be kept far away, and the Berlin come safe into harbour and stay, and moor with no harm. May the great Lord God of the permanent keep us secure in the firmament. All things have their time and health, men and boats, poor or with wealth, things flourish then wither, dwindle and die. What God created these? Horizonless currents of seas. Winds rise and blow unpredicted. In their own multitudinous ways they arise, are inflicted upon us. Stretch our skills, stretch our metal. Let them carry us all in good fettle. Sail full and sure, rudder secure, anchor tight tied, all things applied. Mast hoops rope ready, running, rigging, rendered steady. Each detail correctly discerned, all of our worth to be earned. The yard man employed, the ropes all deployed, stays and halyard themselves in perfection. All things in their places, our ship in its graces, all conspires to confirm good direction. As close as a Berlin might be to perfection, this craft confirms our correction. We look to the harbours out there and fare forward now in your care. Once people read this book, they'll see that um, the next few questions I'm about to ask have cribbed ruthlessly from the introduction, which very usefully for anyone doing an interview <laughs> with you, Alan, <laughs> is presented almost in the form of a Q&A. Why improve on something that's pretty good to begin with? Why don't I steal some of these questions? What form does the poem take? Exp- explain to someone, you know, the way the sort of... I guess the course of the, of the poem. The course of the poem. It goes, it's structured very tightly and very, in a very literary way. Um, again, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating contrast with Duncan Van McIntyre's Praise of Ben Doran, which has a, the structure of a musical pibroch, and that's a very different kind of structure. This one is much more of a narrative, much more of a, of a linear structure, if you like. You follow it on the map. You can go from Loch Einort in South Uist down to the sound of Isla and then uh, across to Carrick Fergus. Uh, but the structure of the poem is much more rigorous in a way. It begins with the blessing and that sense of um, a prayer. And when I did my English language version of it, I wanted to make this a prayer that could be read and understood by atheists. Mm-hmm. Now, Alistair McVeister Alistair was a con- convert uh, to Catholicism. And the prayers, the, the prayer, the blessing that he calls down at the beginning is very conventionally and, and, and meaningfully to the Father, Son and Holy Ghost, as you would expect. Most uh, translators into English, and I looked at about a dozen of them from the 19th century through the 20th century before working on mine, uh, have simply followed this. But what I wanted to do was to push that, that meaning out from um, the orthodoxy of the, of the Christian, uh, of the Catholic faith, and to think of it in terms of the of the natural world that the poem and the and the burl and the ship itself uh, seems to inhabit. So uh, nature, creation, the permanent, the idea of uh, movement uh, are 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 
supreme principles in a sense and they are coordinated in the structure of the poem and what the poem is dealing with, what it's about. So it begins with the blessing, it talks about the, the weapons that the crew have on board, um, then it has very specifically um, descriptions of what each member of the crew does. So you have uh, a man who's there to bail out the ship if the water comes splashing on board. You have a man who sits at the rudder at the, at the, at the, at the, with his arm wrapped around the tiller uh, to uh, direct the ship. You have the, the lookout who will navigate, who, who will look, for, look out for navigation points, currents of seas and um, weather coming in from the horizon and what can be seen all around the ship as it, as it progresses. Uh, you have all of these very meticulously detailed um, descriptions of the, of the crew and very meticulously detailed descriptions of what the ship itself is made of, the oars and the, and the mast and the sail and all of these things. And then they row out, there's a rowing song which gives you the rhythm and the movement of the, of the oars rowing uh, in synchronicity, uh, the, the natural world, the water flowing under the ship, all of that around, in darkness with phosphorescence to catch the tide. And then when the tide is, when they get to the, the, the particular place where they're ready, they bring the oars in and they put the sail up and they get going. And a little later, in the last part of the, of the poem, last third of the poem, is the storm as it arrives and starts to bear down upon them and open up great gulfs and monstrosities. And it becomes a completely surreal, or almost surreal, um, what you would say in the 20th century terms would be Surrealism. It's the, the imagery is wild um, and unpredicted, and uh, what what comes upon these uh, poor guys in the boat is is pretty ferocious. Mm. Um, uh, but nature prevails in the end. The storm um, dies down, and they sail through, and they get to Ireland. And there's this wonderful sense at the end of the poem of re of relief at finding a safe harbour at last, of coming through the storm. So the structure is fairly straightforward or schematized in that sense. A blessing, a setting out the crew and what they do and how they work in coordination, storm that they pass through, and then finally coming into safe harbour. It's an interesting point, isn't there, over who is speaking to whom in this this poem, isn't there? Because at points it seems quite bardic and um, you know uh, in that sort of declamatory style, but in other times it seems almost like the the bard is talking to other sailors or Aye, you know, giving instructions. That's right. That's right. There's more than one voice in the poem, I think. But all the voices are in movement. You get the sense continually that you're at, at sea with them on the ship. Um, but there is a sense of address. There's an address to individual sailors to do certain things, to make sure that they're in the right places and they're ready and able to do things as they arise. Um, there's also a sense of the community of them working together. So there's a kind of... Uh, there's a hierarchy of power. So Clan Ranald commands these sailors, but the, the sailors themselves are each of them in command of their own expertise. So there's no, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a hierarchy of, of class in that sense. It's a hierarchy of expertise that works in coordination for a common purpose. And the common purpose is to do with the survival of all of them. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not exclusive in that sense. So yeah, the, the voice of the poem, if you like, the, the way in which the poem, the way in which the poem addresses the reader is to bring the reader uh, on board, uh, as it were, so that you're, you have the feeling of being with them 
um, and also to keep you on your toes, to keep you on edge, to make sure that you don't quite know uh, what your role is here. Uh, you're not, you're not, you're not um, looking down on these guys. You are actually with them. You're not. It's not a, a sense that the reader is exempt. It's a sense that what you're experiencing in this poem uh, is something which is a, if you like, has that vitality of metaphoric reality. You know that storms will come. You know that things will happen in your life. So, while on the one hand the details of the poem are incredibly meticulous. Uh, on the other hand, the whole poem gives you a metaphoric power, uh, a sense of, of coming through storm. It's interesting too that language you use as well. There's nothing that would arrest uh, or make you your eyes pop out too much, but occasionally you do throw in a sort of modern word that does make you go, aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> like well, there's, a bit, there's a bit where you just say um, fanning about. And, fanning about. And, yeah. and data or data as well. Well, there are, a couple, there are a few things where I, I permitted myself a, a, a few words that uh, seem to have that piquant power. There was one word which was used for the things that the oars rest in. And in various translations, these, these things are referred to as oar ports. Now, an oar port is a circular hole with a, with a slit at the side of it. So you put the blade of the oar through this and then you rest the, the pole of the oar in the circular hole. But that's not what it was. That's, there's something wrong with that translation. Another translation gives it as thole pins. Now, thole pins are literally pins that you put in the gunnel and they're chained to the side of the, um, of the boat. But that isn't right either. I tracked it down. I finally got, I got... I talked to people who were involved in the reconstruction of Berlin's now because the historical background to the, to the poem is also to do with the fact that Berlin's, uh, this, this form of northern galley, um, they were all destroyed. So when Alistair McVeigh Alistair was writing this poem, uh, the lordship of the Isles had been ceded way back centuries before that. So he's reconstructing in his imagination what a Berlin is. And today, in the 21st century, there are people who are working on uh, reconstructing um, Berlin's uh, boats of this kind. So I finally got through to somebody who had the expertise, and he said, no, what you're talking about are cabes, C-A-B-E. A cabe is like a pommel of a saddle and it's, it rises out of the gunnel and a rope or a strap of leather comes down from it and the oar goes into this between the, between the strap and the, and the pommel of the, of the cave itself. So it's flexible, but it's also secure. And this is exactly what you could have if you were, were travelling through the water at that time, through the storm at that time. So the detail of, their, of that is, is very precise. Um, and various sailors' terms, or seaman's terms, seamen's terms, if you like, the, the, the wind is fannying about. That's, I mean, I've, I've sailed on boats, and, and I've been with, 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 you know, out on sailing ships and so on occasionally. I have some experience, and my father was at sea. My father was a sailor, a, a master mariner, a ship's captain, worked as a, as a pilot on the Thames. So, so the vocabulary of seafaring is not entirely unfamiliar to me. So when you're on a sailing ship, and, uh, and you have to make sure that the the mainsail is taut, or, or something of that, to that effect. When the wind is fannying about, it's messing around with you, and the, the sail can flap and take you, you know, if the worst comes to the worst and the, the wind comes suddenly from the wrong direction, it could split the sail. So you're in dangerous territory with all that. So using vernacular terms to describe some of this seemed to me entirely uh, appropriate. But then the other example would be in the storm, where um, 
as I say, the imagery is so wild and, and surreal um, that I permitted myself to two terms which would have been would have, are, are historically and literally uh, entirely inappropriate. <laughs> I talked about the, um, the the storm opening its mouth with teeth that are crocodile sharp, or with um, hippopotamus tusks uh, closing down um, on, on you. And uh, of course I don't think hippopotamuses and uh, alligators or uh, crocodiles were terribly familiar to um, Alistair McGlaster Alistair in the 1750s when he was writing the poem. But it seemed to me entirely right to bring that in in that way because the storm is boiling up um, and you're not sure where the language is coming from at this point and the threat of it has to surprise you. Um, it's, not, it's not predicted. Mm. The storm is the sort of, uh, I guess that would be the the set piece moment in the poem, isn't it? It's when uh, you know the special effects kick in and uh, the CGI, the linguistic CGI, <laughs> takes place. And um, it's not just you know um, quite often in, in in seafaring epics or even films nowadays. The big moment is is the storm. But as you were saying yourself, there, I, I, this isn't a storm that as you might expect from even Homer or somebody like that. I was reading it and thought it was like a gothic horror or even all the stuff about creatures and the sea. It was like Lovecraft, actually, that sort of tentacular sort yeah. of horror Aye. coming up from beneath the men. It was, it was quite extraordinary to read that. And after quite practical passages about what each crewman does on the ship. Yeah, that's right. It, it is, it's like that. I think it's... Oh, we're, I'm writing this and we're reading this in a post... Um, romantic or post-Gothic uh, world where such images and ideas will come to mind quite readily. Um, that's not the world that Alistair McVeister Alistair is coming out of. So in a sense I'm exploiting that. Um, but on the other hand, everything that goes on in that section of the poem is entirely realistic. Uh, realistic in the sense that um, well, when I was out, I remember being out on a, on a yacht uh, sailing around the Hebrides about um, about six years ago now, or seven years ago, um, being caught in a force nine gale, where the where the yacht was going over almost, where the mast was almost um, parallel with the surface of the sea, and then pushing back up again. So the kind of you know it wasn't it wasn't that bad, but it was I'd never experienced anything like it before. So when I'm, when you're working with some sense of experience, uh, to recreate something in a poem which. Um, which draws upon uh, actuality to that degree, you're not actually being literal in what you're describing. You're not giving the literal aspect of it, but you're using the literal experience to make the, the metaphoric uh, reality of it more vivid. So I think that's what's going on in that section. I think that is there in the original. Um, when he talks about the lightning um, flickering and flaring uh, of the rigging, um, that's, that's, that's literally the case. Uh, he would have seen that. Um, but the storm itself is much more explosive in its uh, in its imagery, and uh, you feel the danger pressing in on you. It's a line about um, the sea looking like boiling porridge yeah. in the original. Yeah, yeah. I um, think that's a great Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if any other cultures would bother describing the sea like that, but uh, we well, it is like that sometimes, and you know, you can sometimes. Um, there's a, there's a great uh, passage in one of the Patrick O'Brien books 
um, about Captain Aubrey, um, where, you go, where the storm comes up. The entire ocean in front of you uh, is, is grey, it's grey-white. It's not like um, a, a romantic image of an ocean at all. And the, st the, the storm itself has that boiling porridge look. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it's accurate. The people I know who have been to sea and who have experienced such things uh, thankfully have approved. So they say, yeah, it's all right, yes, that's, that's it. Great. Shall we read a part yeah. passage from, say, the, um, the storm section? That would be great. This is how it begins. The voyage. Hoist sail at dawn on the day of St. Bride, bearing out from the mouth of Loch Einort, south-east. Furnace gold, hot yellow, yoke yellow, brass brazen sun, burning through fishnets of clouds, trellises meshed, burning them open, emerges, and the clouds burn back, close in once again, cover all things, changing, sky becomes ash, blackening, and a blue splash there, and then, thickening, bulging, effulging, turning sick, pale, brown, beige, tawny, impending, bellying down, and the fretwork rematches itself, closes in, hue thick as tartan, dark weaves, anger flashes, and there, high in the west, a broken shaft, a dogtooth of rainbow, colour stripes swelling, a fang of sharp colour, clouds moving faster to cover it over, and the winds pick up speed, toss the clouds as if showers of boulders, grey fragments of stone, chips of earth, avalanching in sky. They lift up the sail, they spring up to stretch the stiff solid ropes to their places, secure now, tough and unbreakable, there from the deck to the high, hard, tapering, resined red point of the mast, Secure all the knots, faultless all joints, rope connections between all bolt rings and hooks, made impeccable, run up and tied down, tense and unflexing as iron, assured, reassured, now firmly secured. Quickly they check and correct every bit of equipment on board, make sure, once again and again, all the men sit down then to take in, to have heeded, the acts of precaution still needed. Then the sky is all opening windows, squares speckled, Releases grey-blue, steel-blue, hard-blue. The wind blows through, starting grumpy and grim, then surly and huffy, then gathering anger. It opens its eyes, little shrieks, squally cries, and the force you can feel starts to swell. Something vigorous, growing, pours down straight out of hell. The sea all lifts up like a great black coat, rising to cover the sky, like a shroud thrown out, soaring up like a blanket, coarse stuff, shaggy at surface. A big horse's pelt in black winter. A cataract rising, a waterfall soaring, returning itself to its source. A natural screaming and screeching and howling and yowling. An ocean becomes mountains and bends and valleys and glens, all rough with the forest and bushes and grass. Sea opens its mouth, is all mouth, all agape, widening, sharpening the teeth, all crocodile strong, hippopotamus tusks and gripping and turning, as if wrestling was fun, forcing over each one. Sky shrinks and clenches long ribs on its brow. It has turned to ferocity now. The fight to the death has begun. I feel like I should have got the BBC uh, radio uh, workshop, sound workshop in there and had some thunder. <laughs> you don't need it. It's all, there, it's all there well, in the words. I, I guess it was, it was doing that for me anyway. Aye, it's the... And it gets worse. So I really bit right yeah, couple of bits in the middle. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just the bit you mentioned: the, the sea boiling porridge, all muddy and white, all streaked in grey and bloodily red, 
beaded and veined with magenta and puce, never a respite, never a truce, colours of terror, razors of fright, tatters and trails of the dying and dead, even the sea creatures, horned, bug-eyed, crawling on sea floor, their claws groping forward to snap, grip, grasp, jaws open, appalling to see, are in horror themselves, as are you and me. All is terror right now, with terror ahead. The ocean entire is full and replete of all shapes and sizes. Monsters compete, ghouls in their multitudes, tails waving behind them, creatures groaning in fear, disgusting to hear. All the crew could be snapped by them, in one instant, eaten, should they fall to their vice grip, be taken and beaten. The crew cannot hear any more. They draw near the screaming of demons below, the roaring of beasts in the air, surrounding them. Noise rises now everywhere. See, that, that's straight out of H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> Lovecraft used to write poetry as well, but um, wasn't quite as accomplished as his short stories, let's put it that way. And that brings to a close another edition of the SPL podcast series. As usual, thanks for an order, thanks to yourself for listening. And thanks to Alan Ruyak, who came into the library to discuss his translation of The Berlin of Clan Ranald, copies of which are available from its publisher, Catalonia. If you'd like to order a copy, try their website, or you could, of course, come into the Poetry Library and borrow one. Um, thanks also to Will Campbell, whose music opens and closes the show. Uh, vital information now, another SPL podcast will chug interview sometime in the next fortnight. If you'd like to know what we're up to, that is the library, is up to between uh, podcasts, why not visit our website? Pen and paper ready? It's www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. Uh, we have a Twitter account, would you believe? Our handle is at ByLeavesWeLive. We do Facebook, just type in Scottish Poetry Library, you'll find us. And we do Instagram now too as well. Our handle on Instagram is SPL Scotland. And uh, we have a newsletter too. And it's very easy to subscribe to our e-newsletter, which comes out every fortnight on a Friday. Just visit our homepage. Do you remember the address for that? Yes, you do. It's www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk. If you go to our homepage, you'll find um, just above the fold, I think it is, as as they say, uh, a big button that says subscribe and a space next to it in which you type your email and voila, there you go. You are subscribed to the SPL e-newsletter. Um, well, that's it now for this podcast, barring one last piece of poetry read by our guest, Anne Riak. So, shiver your timbers and splice the main brace as we return to the Berlin of Clan Renaud. So we lowered the sail, let it rest, stained and flecked, thinned, spotted and spattered, torn and sea-battered, and on the boards we laid down the mast at its length on the flat there at the last. Red mast, so tall and brave, now horizontal, made prone to rest what was forward and frontal. So far we are from ruin and wreck, but still holding fast, all now in check. Then outmost melodious oars, the song of them smoothing and soothing again. Fir trees from forests and Finnan, the island, afforded them for us to use. McVarish, the clan, brought them in, cast their spell, shaped them finely for us, and we used them well. The rowing was rhythmic and even, regular, regular, even and easeful, carried us over the water and into the harbour of Ireland, round the point of Carrickfergus. Safe haven. The anchor was dropped, 
and the calm now prevailed, and we looked on the land now so green, with our backs to the storm and the sea and the hell we had sailed over, crossed to this place to replenish ourselves, renew and find grace, food and drink would be good, beyond all, become clean once again, I could tell. Here we shall dwell, and all shall be well, and peaceful the air of our chosen place there. For now, let it be, breathe deep, we shall see. podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.